G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this is The Truth of It. And today I'm going to talk about two main topics, but amongst the first one, there's a whole bunch of mini topics. So it's going to be six hot takes on things that are in the news at the moment, including Will Smith at the Oscars, the federal budget, Australia's unemployment rate, Dave Rubin and his husband expecting a child, uh, the SCOTUS nominee, Supreme Court nominee in the US, and an article I picked up about uh, having kids in a changing climate. And then I'm going to finish off with another major section, which is uh, the truth about President Vladimir Zelensky, as promised on last week's episode when I did the truth about President Vladimir Putin. But if that didn't make any sense, it's about to because I'm going to take you through it. First up, some hot takes, some short mini segments on six things that I've picked up in the media over the last week or so. I'm going to deal with these topics a little bit more quickly than usual. Uh, I will deal with Will Smith hitting Chris Rock at the Oscars. I will deal with the federal budget. I will deal with Australia's record low unemployment rate. Uh, Dave Rubin and his uh, husband expecting uh, two children. The latest US Supreme Court nominee's inability to to define a woman. Uh, And an article by a millennial who says that she's guilty about having children due to climate change. So first up, Will Smith. I'm not going to rehearse everything that happened because I think unless you're living under a rock, pretty much everybody knows exactly what did happen, namely that Will Smith got uh, offended by a joke that Chris Rock made on the stage at the Oscars ceremony, got up, belted the guy in the head uh, and then swore at him and then there was apologies and all the rest of it. So I looked through the detail of this. I found out about it like most people on my social media. Uh, And then I started looking through the details to think, huh, what should I make of this? And I tell you, it just got progressively more depressing. Uh, First of all, there was the joke that kicked the whole thing off, which was just an unfunny joke about Will Smith's wife's baldness. She has alopecia. Uh, Apparently, Chris Rock didn't know the full detail there, but who knows? Uh, Then there was the whole hitting him in the head uh, online live television and storming the stage. Uh, Then there was the screaming and the swearing again on live television. Then there was all the blubbering down the microphone. Uh, And then there was this sort of incoherent kind of quasi-apology sort of justification where he said he wanted to be a vessel of love or something. It didn't make a lot of sense. And then I found out, of course, that Will Smith and his wife uh, are in an open marriage. And then it turns out that Will Smith actually laughed at the joke before she gave him a look and then he lost his mind. And I gave up. This is a parable of one thing and one thing only, namely that Hollywood is beyond messed up and we ought to avoid it entirely, as if we needed any more proof. These are people who are living flagrantly immoral lives with all sorts of trouble and turmoil lurking right below the surface. And the only reason that so many people can't see it is because they are so rich. Wealth does cover a multitude of sins. Uh, You know, you can't live that way uh, if you're not rich and you can't actually pay the money to deal with the consequences. There's a huge cushioning buffer that comes through wealth and technology. But also, people won't admire you for living that way unless you are rich. The fact of the matter is that Hollywood uh, is a den of iniquity. We know that. But that is why it now pretty much exclusively produces iniquity I had no idea the Oscars were on. I'm thrilled about that. I didn't know what Will Smith looked like until this incident took place. I'm thrilled about that. I hope the ignorance continues and never changes because I don't want to be influenced by them. I don't want to be thinking like them. What a tortured and messed up world this is. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And that doesn't just mean snub your nose at this stuff. 
It means don't read the gossip stuff. It means don't go, I mean, I even regret looking into the detail too much of this. It gets into your brain and it is not profitable. Uh, not to mention, there's some kind of addiction out there. I mean, this has all gone so viral, partly because people are addicted to conflict. Uh, and they're addicted to this emotionalism, which is what Will Smith just got no control of his emotions whatsoever. Um, and, and that kind of conflict, it is not, it is not uh, a hallmark of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. And it's not a way we should be, what we should be filling our minds with. Stick with the Philippians 4.8 principle and you can't go wrong. Hollywood wants to get inside our minds. Our minds should be somewhere else. Second hot take, the federal budget coming back to the Australian shores. Uh, it was delivered on Tuesday night, the 19th of March. It's an annual ritual of the federal government. And this year, it just happens to be in time to call a federal election, which will no doubt occur in the next couple of weeks because the federal election has to occur before the 20, on or before the 21st of May. I want to make a general reflection on this. Over the course of the pandemic, it's actually true that Australia has proportionally increased our debt more than any other country in the world besides the US. This despite actually having a relatively mild experience of coronavirus, the pandemic. Yes, it was a crisis, but it's not a crisis that we've been generally feeling at a macro level financially. Unemployment is the lowest it has been for 13 years at 4%. So people have jobs. People are working. Supply chain issues mean that new stuff can't be produced fast enough to satiate our appetites to buy things. We've just had stimulus upon stimulus thrown at us for two years, such that spending actually increased during the pandemic. And there was a lot of controversy about the uh, over uh, distribution of all of that stimulus, and I could go into that. I won't, I'll move on. Um, and here we are throwing more money in the federal budget, just when we're on the other side as well. Cash payments going into the bank accounts of 10 million plus Australians. For what? Because petrol prices are up? Well, that happens, but also we're cutting the fuel excise in half anyway. Not to mention the big problem that's probably coming down the line, most analysts are predicting, is inflation. And putting more money into the system is only going to make that problem worse. But of course, that problem is probably post-election. So it's not such a big deal. I know I'm becoming a voice crying in the wilderness on this because people simply don't think it matters anymore. But there is a simple rule in all things. If something can't continue forever, it won't. And our economic behaviour, at least in this country since 2008, cannot continue forever. And it won't. It won't. And either it will be corrected now by wise policy heads and interventions, or on a day in the future, it will correct itself, and that will come at great cost, amidst much pain and much chaos. And the behaviour to which I refer that can't continue forever is major spending blowouts at every whiff of crisis, which are never compensated for, never corrected, never repaired, ground is never regained before the next crisis comes to undermine things even more. Nothing is done to restore in the, mean, in the, in the intervening periods, the crisis causes a further undermining of the financial position. This is the opposite of wisdom. I want to just look, for example, take Joseph from Genesis, the biblical Joseph. The hallmark of his God-given wisdom when he was prime minister was this, that he stored up what was available in the good times to weather 
the real and the serious and the cataclysmic crisis when it came. So much so that Egypt was among the only places in the world with supply to spare when they needed it most. That's wisdom. And here we are really doing pretty well now and we're still spending. Nobody talks about this problem anymore because people don't want to see out of the good feels of today. They don't want to see out of the good times they're experiencing here and now. They're not future minded. They're not big picture minded. They're just enjoying themselves in the minute. And we don't see out of the good things happening to critically judge the future or to see the bigger cost of these good feelings that come with these economic policies. I'm sure these cash splashes may win an election, but it'll do us no good in the much bigger scheme of things. It's an overall negative take on the behaviour in the budget this time around. Oh, it'll win an election because people don't think ahead. But this can't continue forever and the government's shown no appetite to stop it. One positive thing to come out of the budget is this. 16,500 additional places were added to the refugee intake over the next four years, specifically for Afghan nationals fleeing the Taliban. So this is largely going to be persecuted minorities, including Christians. It's going to be people who have reason to flee the Taliban. They are vetted. It's quite a small number, actually, in light of the overall scheme of things and with no immigration in the last couple of years. But this is something that ACL lobbied for with a whole coalition of other faith groups. A great win for us uh, and a success in terms of assisting with the crisis that continues to unfold in uh, Afghanistan. That is the federal budget. Third hot take on unemployment. Um, the unemployment rate in Australian people will glaze over at this point and go, oh, how boring. Well, let me just uh, explain to you why I've picked this up. Um, just to show that I'm all, not all negative Nancy, this is good news, albeit news that barely rated a mention in the media. Uh, Australia's unemployment is actually down to the lowest level it's been in 13 years, down to the magic 4% threshold. There's a range of reasons, not least of which is that there's been incredibly low immigration in the last couple of years because of the pandemic. But here's what I want to say. I want to reflect for a minute just on the fact that government policies that promote work and improve uh, people's access to work are intrinsically good. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was the first thing, one of the first things that human beings were actually charged to do, even in paradise. In Genesis chapter 2, um, they were given work. They were told to work. Um, and this is repeated in the New Testament that, that work is an intrinsic good. Second Thessalonians 3, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now we command and exhort such persons in the Lord Jesus Christ to work peacefully and eat their own bread. Or 1 Timothy 5, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are pretty strong words. Um, why would that be so? A couple of reasons, but one is certainly this, and it's in the first, ref first reference there, it's the word discipline. He says, you know, not to work is to lead an undisciplined life. Discipline is a forgotten virtue. We don't believe in discipline like we once believed in it because we no longer believe that the human nature needs to be disciplined in order to be improved, in order to be made virtuous from a condition of being not virtuous. And it does need to be improved through discipline. Human nature is given to idleness. It is given to vanity. It is given to indulgence. All those things are the devil's workshop. The human heart is inclined towards the degeneration into that which is sinful without virtues like discipline. Work is good. It is not optional because it is a discipline. 
and it is incumbent upon us all to discipline ourselves us in this discipline ourselves in this regard. Um, and a society where people are disciplined in the business of working and providing for their households is a better place. And indeed, all government policy that would undermine or disincentivize work are bad policies because work is a creation ordinance. It is for the blessing of all mankind, not just Christians. Um, but I add this caveat, of course, uh, there is work which is important, indeed perhaps even more important, which is not necessarily a professional career. There are those who are carers, for example, or there are those who are raising children. And that is not career in the sense of the unemployment figures looking at jobs in the job market, but that is work. And that is just as important, if not more important. Um, but of course, those people do not affect the unemployment figures because the unemployment figures are based on those who are looking for work. Uh, and so it's not really an issue. But I say all that to make the point that work is good and we have a better society for 4% unemployment. Fourth hot take, I'm going to go into some controversial territory, a short segment on Dave Rubin, the well-known conservative commentator, um, and the fact that he and his husband, he's gay, uh, are expecting a couple of children. This is awful. Uh, I hate talking about it in one sense. Um, this is one thing that makes me really despair, uh, and one thing that I struggle not to get just a little bit angered by, and it is the intentional raising of a child in an unnatural family structure, depriving the child of, a, of its mother, of its father, or both. There are support groups around the world for children who were adopted, or kids who were donor-conceived, even in the best of families who report lifelong pain and disturbance at their dislocated biological history, their lack of connection with their parents and so forth. But you're not allowed to raise those very real emotional tolls, those very real troubles that young people face in relation to gay parenting or intentional single parenting because it's not politically correct and it's unkind. It's what to you, it is unkind, but it's unkind. Those structures are unkind to the children criticizing them. If it's unkind to the parents, it's nothing uh, compared to the unkindness of the children inflicted by those structures. I'm not saying that I'm against adoption, just to be clear, because it is restorative as far as possible of circumstances that have been deprived of a child, okay? So that's actually a restoration effort. But I am against everything that deliberately channels in the opposite direction, that the intentional depriving of a child of their mother or their father or both or a mother, father, household, which is not only biological, it's not only the natural course of things, but it is right. It is a definition given by the creator himself who made that environment for children. And Dave Rubin, a very popular so-called conservative commentator, who also happens to be married to a man, has announced that they are expecting two children. Th what this means, of course, is that they have looked at a gallery of women, and he describes the process. They've chosen the one that they like the look of. They've sent donor sperm, and she is carrying a baby for them, times two. So this is eugenics, soft, this is soft eugenics. So it's using women for exploitative purposes. They must give up the child that they carried. And it's pretending that these babies have two dads, which they do not. Any more that Leah Thomas was a woman, these babies do not have two dads. These are not statements of fact. They are impossible by virtue of the simple truth and science of the situation. But apparently it's exciting, it's joyful, it's amazing, and it is worth celebrating. Will you excuse, excuse me if I don't? Um, it got me wondering, 
uh, you know, if I watch this and think to myself, this is horrendous. Uh, this is dreadful. I mean, I'm not married. It doesn't matter how much I want children. I will never have a child because it would be wrong unless there was some very, very, very unusual circumstance at play. Well, this is wrong because that child does, those children do not have two dads. And I think, why do I have that reaction? And why is it that when I look at these guys announcing what's going on, that they are so completely and profoundly blind to the wrongness of what they're doing? I think there can only be one answer. I think it must be self-righteousness. Let me explain. Reuben is convinced that this is his identity and that it defines him and that it must define his world in order for him to be fulfilled. But he is not convinced that what comes out of his heart, those things which are attached to what we now call in the modern age our identity, our inner person, could at all be wrong, sinful, or evil. Or that if we were to pursue and to follow what comes from the inner person, that that could be the cause of us inflicting wrong, inflicting evil on other people. He doesn't believe that, although he believes in his identity. But hear the words of Jesus when he talks about that which we might pursue, which comes out of our identity and ourself. He says this, that which comes out of the person, this is in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, I think, that which comes out of the person uh, is that which defiles the person. For it is from within, out of the hearts of people, come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. Boy, that's a countercultural statement. What's the source of sin? It's not all the stuff out there in the society and the culture and the politics. Oh, no, 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 it's this. And this is where the Christian must, ought to be, Indeed, every true Christian should be and is so different. The Christian is the person who has realized that he is worse than he will ever truly know. That his sin runs deeper and controls him more profoundly than he can ever possibly imagine. And he needs not to live by his identity, but to live by the light and the holiness of Christ, which comes from outside of himself and who alone liberates him from his identity and the evil that lurks within himself and saves him not only from the burden of that on his own life, but of the burden that can, that can be inflicted on the lives of others. Hence the two pillars of Christian conversion. Repentance toward God, that is the conviction of our sin, which is an act of God in today's world. Nobody believes they're a sinner or they're wrong. Self-righteousness reigns supreme. Oh no, but God can convict of sin. And he can cause a person to turn from it and renounce it. Uh, and then, of course, the second faith, turning to, turning away from sin, turning to Christ and trusting wholly in him. That's so important. And the moral of the story is this, you know, uh, Mr. Reuben uh, and his husband, and I wish them no harm. Um, but my goodness, this, this challenges me. But the moral of the story is that, you know, yeah, he may have said that he converted to conservatism some years ago. But getting people on the right political side in the right political trench will not save the world. Oh, no, no. Only God does that who changes the heart in Jesus Christ. And self-righteousness will prevent us from ever embracing that because Christ comes and does away with our self-righteousness. And may God keep us all. Let's not just focus on others for a second. Let's focus on ourselves as should, we should always do. 
May God keep us all from underestimating the corruption of our own self and our own identity and preserve us from unknowingly doing evil and inflicting it on others because we have become self-righteous. Fifthly, another hot take on the nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States, Katanji Brown Jackson. She is the latest nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court during the two, during 2020 in the presidential campaign. Joe Biden specifically said that he would nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. Uh, so not the best person for the job, but the preferred identity for the job or perhaps the best black woman for the job. Uh, and that has happened. But as the best black woman for the job, when asked by Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, can you provide a definition of the word woman? Jackson replied, no, I can't. I am not a biologist. Now, I'm not an architect, but I know what a house is. I'm not a doctor, but I know what a brain is. I'm not a rocket scientist, but I know what a space shuttle is. I'm not a town planner, but I know what a road is. So what is going on here? She's nominated because she is a qualified black woman. She can't define or won't define what a woman is. There is some serious irony in that. Here's what's happening. Words are political tools in the world of woke. They're not connected to absolute truth, unchanged and unchanging, but they are, the definitions are changed so that they can become political tools. A word has a meaning so long as the meaning is expedient towards achieving a certain political outcome. To define a woman does not suit the political outcome that Jackson and her colleagues want right now in that context. But to crow about appointing a black woman to the Supreme Court does suit Joe Biden's political narrative right now. You get it? It's a little bit like that old quote. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. Controlling the definition, the meaning of words has a great power and it characterizes this age because it is akin to defining what is true. And once you define what is true, you can define how people will act because people will pursue what is true or how things ought to be. It's all about controlling how things ought to be, controlling the political narrative, controlling how people act. If you have control over the definition of words, man, you're a long way down that road. Here's the antidote to all that rubbish of changing and fluid definitions of words and seizing control of the language for political ends. What does Jesus say when it comes to this matter? He said in John's Gospel, when he was praying to the Father, he said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So the answer for us is that the words of God and the meaning that God has given those words are the true and right and good power over our lives. Yes, he has defined woman, it's in Genesis. But as we live in a world where words are redefined to exert power over the culture and over people, remember this, the true and the right and the good power is in the words of God, which don't change because he has given them their meaning. Sixth and finally, one more hot take. I want to cover an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, which comes from Gina Rushton. Uh, and she, uh, it's a little bit incoherent. It's about a recent school strike for climate event. And she opens as follows. I'm not a Gen Z climate activist. I'm just another millennial woman who has been guilty of berating herself for considering bringing a child into a climate crisis. 
And she seems to suggest that maybe she shouldn't have many kids, uh, but that maybe she should. Uh, but she says at first that they shouldn't have. She she shouldn't have many kids, but then she says maybe I should because it's not my fault. It's the government's fault. And her conclusion therefore is don't despair. Be angry at the government. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. The conclusion is this. In the anxiety of considering parenthood in a changing climate, anger feels like the necessary bridge between delusion and defeat. Unlike contrition, which folds us into ourselves, seeking redemption in a handful of consumer choices, anger has an object, another to be held accountable. So she says, ah, I'll have my kids because it's someone else's trouble. It's the government. Um, like I said, a little bit incoherent, but tapping into something that's been going on for a while now, namely the view that the population needs to be controlled and that virtuous people don't have big families. I haven't experienced this when I was at school. It was starting then and uh, people would sort of, some types would turn their nose up at the fact that you had a big family, a big car and you're churning emissions and all the rest of it. Uh, I want to observe something. This whole line of thinking stems fundamentally from godlessness. It can only arise in a context where a person does not believe that God is who he is, namely that he made this present world, that he has determined its end from its beginning, and in the meantime, he sustains it. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, it says it in a range of places. If you untether yourself from that basic truth of reality, you end up guilty of having children in a climate crisis. You end up helpless you end up probably very anxious indeed because this random chaos of a universe may collapse in on you at any moment. But for those of us who know that God is who he says he is, notice something very important from Genesis chapter 8. There are two things said directly in parallel, uh, said at the very same time. The first is a command to have children and to multiply. This is a repeat of the command in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates male and female. It says, whoever sheds human blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Right? But aha, the climate types get all wobbly at the knees at this point. And they say, ah, but we'll end the planet. But I'm so guilty of causing all this trouble for the planet, of, of, of ruining the paradigm that we're in. Now, that's precisely why, in practically the same breath, God says, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, oh, but more specific than that, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what does it mean? If you marry, and if you can, children are not optional. They are mandated. Furthermore, in following through on that mandate, the one thing that we don't need to do is get all worried about those matters which are in God's jurisdiction, namely whether our kids will end the world or whether the world will end on our kids. The world will end and I strongly suspect that Jesus will mess it up fairly badly anyway when he does end it. I know there's two schools of thought on that, uh, but the point is this, fine, we don't pillage the earth. I don't believe in any of that stuff. And yeah, there's a certain level of stewardship that can be justified and that is good. But it is to say this, have confidence in what is fundamentally becoming an age of fear. All right, next up, after that little excursion into some hot takes, I have a substantial topic. It is, who is Vladimir Zelensky? 
Zelensky is a mixed character, and honestly, it's not very easy to sum him up in a nutshell, but we all know that he is the 44-year-old president of Ukraine, often denigrated by his detractors as a mere comedian. But it turns out, certainly as I've gone through all the detail on this man, that whether he is good or bad, one thing I have learned is that he is a smart cookie. He is no fool. Uh, he grew up in a neighborhood known as Quarter 95, which he and others have described as a city of bandits. Nonetheless, he studied law and he has a law degree. During university, he got involved in acting and comedy, and ultimately he started his own production company called Studio Quarter 95, named after where he grew up, which became phenomenally successful. Perhaps their biggest success, um, which entrenched Zelensky as a household name in Ukraine, was a TV show called Servant of the People, which premiered in October 2015. His wife of 18 years is the show's writer, and in it, Zelensky is cast as a history teacher who became a viral internet sensation after a student filmed him delivering an impassioned tirade against official corruption. The history teacher goes on to be, believe it or not, elected president of Ukraine as the plot of the show. Uh, and that is kind of what happened to Zelensky himself in the real world, not just in his character. Studio Quarter 95, the company that produced this, docu this um, documentary, just about was, that produced this show, registered the political party Servant of the People, named after the show, or SOP, in 2018, and Zelensky then announced his candidacy for president. Uh, and he was the instant front runner. He was elected in a landslide on the 31st of March 2019 with 73% of the vote, which is quite enormous. His platform was overtly and avowedly reformist with a major focus on fighting corruption. That's why the show was so popular in the first place. It's all about anti-corruption. And it's also why then his candidacy was so popular uh, because that was the theme of his whole campaign along with supporting Ukraine's membership of the EU and NATO. Zelensky's party, the SOP, Servant of the People, went on to win 254 or 450 seats in the Ukrainian parliamentary elections, which gave a single party an absolute majority for the first time in Ukraine's post-Soviet history. And it's a unicameral parliament, I understand, so that's tremendous power. Uh, Zelensky was successful uh, as a seeming political novice and an outsider due to the public appetite to fight corruption and initiate reform. His campaign was unorthodox. It contained very few substantive policies and relied heavily on social media. It's got massive followings uh, and comedic content as well. His party, the SOP, Servant of the People, uh, initially described itself as libertarian, which gave it a very predictable philosophy, which is effectively free markets and liberal social policy, you know, lots of freedom. Uh, but it has recently recast itself as a centrist party, which makes me suspicious. I'm always suspicious of parties that claim to be centrist because they simply never are. Uh, they use the label to win the widest possible support, but they invariably fall on the left or the right in practice. So that kind of remains to be seen. Here are some highlights from the SOP's official policy platform. One, abolishing legal immunity for MPs. Actually, I don't have numbers, so I won't number these. But abolishing legal immunity for MPs. Uh, create a mechanism for the people to be able to veto recently adopted legislation. Decentralise power. Make it possible for media owners to influence what journalists say. Make it impossible, sorry, for media owners to influence what journalists say. Introduce referendums. A complete clean-up and relaunch of the prosecutor's office. Mandatory confiscation of corrupt officials' property. Uh, defence spending set at a minimum of 5% of GDP. The modernisation of the military according to NATO standards. Uh, expand cooperation with the EU and with NATO. Reduce court fees. That's an access to justice thing. Uh, introduction of witness protection. Introduction of legal gun ownership. Protect human rights and fundamental freedoms for men and women in Ukraine. So there's some key things. Before I get into the, some of the details, like the two major ones there, 
Just to comment on Zelensky's religion, uh, he's very cagey on the subject, actually. He's not a practicing Jew, uh, and he has said that his family was not religious growing up. He said a couple of interesting things, however. He said he believes in God, and speaking with the Times of Israel, he said this, quote, I had one attitude when I was a boy and another now. I never speak about religion and I never speak about God because I have my own personal opinion about it. Of course, I believe in God, but I speak with him only in those moments which are personal for me and important and where I feel comfortable in those places. Um, in another interview, he says this, this was with a Ukrainian um, media outlet, I believe. In general, on the topic of religion, there are things that we never discuss at the table in my family. That's how my father taught me. I never discuss them with anyone. Religion is number one. We never discuss things that divide families and society. I never do it, never. But I believe in God, if that's the question. So it probably betrays a poor appreciation of the connection between belief in God, what God is like, and the actions that we actually undertake in secular life, as it's become known, uh, and other spheres. So it's this privatization, this, uh, this reducing of religion to a box. Uh, so certainly it's had no discernible impact on his acting and his comedy, which were at times very risque, very foul-mouthed, very sexualized, and actually anti-religion at times. Um, that's his religion side. Back to the policies. Um, two things I'll go through. Firstly, NATO and the EU, very briefly, and then just a couple of his anti-corruption moves, which have been interesting. Firstly, NATO and the EU. His, uh, Putin has actually singled out Zelensky's pro-NATO and pro-EU efforts as a major excuse for his invasion of Ukraine, and this is pretty well known now. Um, Ukraine has, under Zelensky's presidency, been recognized as a NATO Enhanced Opportunities Partner. Um, in other words, there's greater sharing of information, there's sharing of military exercises and things like that. This has got Putin nervous, uh, so Putin says. Uh, that's a status, Equal Opportunities Partner is a status that Australia also has, because we're of course not in the North Atlantic, uh, but we have a, a, that status with NATO. Uh, and also um, Finland, Georgia, Jordan and Sweden. Um, but since the invasion, Zelensky has changed his tune, probably because he has to. Uh, he said, regarding NATO, I have cooled down regarding this question long ago after we understood that NATO is not prepared to accept Ukraine. The alliance is afraid of controversial things and confrontation with Russia. I never wanted to be a country which is begging something on its knees. We are not going to be that country. I don't want to be that president. So he's cooled right down on NATO. He has to for the sake of the present conflict. Um, the thing that is... Uh, particularly interesting is this anti-corruption side of his presidency. <coughs> Pardon me, this anti-corruption side of his presidency. According to Zelensky, this is why he got into politics. It certainly was the overwhelming theme of his uh, campaign. Um, his progress has, to say the least, been mixed. Uh, there's an anti-oligarch law, which he has passed. There's a, a, a law which takes away immunity for politicians, which has passed. And there's illicit enrichment in the criminal code, which has passed. Um, on the anti-oligarch law, um, Zelensky sort of was big on the whole oligarch thing at the start. He said there can be no other option but to dismantle the oligarch system. Without this, it is simply impossible to overcome poverty in Ukraine and fully, enjoy, and fully join the European community. He also said this, quote, I do not want us to have oligarchs. That's why I know that during my term we will get rid of all the oligarchs. I gave such a word and I'm going to do it. Now, the law passed in November 2021, and this is what it does. It's an anti-oligarch law. It, one, creates a register of oligarchs. Two, requires public officials to disclose their contact with oligarchs. Three, excludes oligarchs from political funding. Uh, so they're allowed to fund political parties, political advertising, and so on. It excludes oligarchs from media ownership, and it excludes oligarchs from participating in state asset privatization tenders. But the law is very, very vague. And when I looked at it at first, it really made me wonder. I thought this thing is a toothless tiger and open to abuse. It just was immediately obvious. If this was an Australian piece of legislation, I'd be up in arms. Uh, and it seems that I'm not alone. 
Another Ukrainian MP, Kira Radek, has written this. Uh, the measures required in order to genuinely limit power in Ukraine's oligarch clans are well known. These include the creation of an independent judiciary, strengthening of antitrust laws and antitrust authorities, corporate governance reform in the public sector, elimination of tax benefits for big businesses and greater transparency in media funding. There is nothing to indicate that the present Ukrainian authorities plan to implement any of these steps. Instead, they appear to have chosen populist anti-oligarch posturing as a tool to tackle political opponents, while at the same time maintaining or even strengthening relations with favoured oligarch clans. The office of the president has created deliberately vague anti-oligarch legislation that does not contain any objective steps to limit oligarch influence. Instead, it enables the National Security and Defence Council, which is personally appointed by the president, to determine who is an oligarch and who should face restrictions on owning media or participating in the political life of the country. I mean, that is rife for abuse. So the president appoints this body. The body gets to choose who's an oligarch, put them on the register and completely defang them in all politics and media, uh, whereas it doesn't necessarily have to put anyone on the list. Um, eh. David Clark, former UK foreign officer advisor, has, foreign office advisor, has said, recent developments illustrate why many remain sceptical about talk of an anti-oligarch crusade. As soon as the anti-oligarch bill was signed into law by President Zelensky in early November, former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko immediately sold his media assets. Nevertheless, a number of MPs from Zelensky's own Servant of the People party argued that this would not prevent Poroshenko from being identified as an oligarch due to uncertainties with the application of the new law. So they're intending to go after Poroshenko, who's a political opponent of Zelensky. Notably, says Clark, other oligarchs with large media empires who enjoy friendlier relations with Zelensky did not seem at all bothered by the new legislation. Due to the obvious potential for highly subjective and politically motivated application, I regard Ukraine's anti-oligarch legislation as a power grab disguised in the language of political populism. More importantly, it can be used to attack Zelensky's political opponents. I must say, I think all that criticism is very valid on the face of things. It's not a great law. Um, second, and I do read a lot of laws for a living, so yeah, it's not a great law. Uh, very quickly, uh, three things that have been a little bit more successful. Uh, the immunity law, this is interesting. There uh, has been a constitutional amendment under Zelensky, Zelensky's term, which dropped the guarantee of parliamentary immunity and removed the rule that parliamentarians can only be prosecuted, detained or arrested by approval of the parliament. But, there's a big but, all legal proceedings against members of parliament must now be approved by the prosecutor general. Uh, so the obvious concern that arises is the integrity of the whole system depends on the integrity of the prosecutor general. Uh, and that person's politics and allegiance may affect their judgment. So that's a concern there, although I think maybe it is a net improvement, I think. Uh, this one is an improvement. Uh, illicit enrichment has been added as an offence to Ukraine's criminal code. And it means that officials with assets they cannot explain worth more than $250,000 face five years in jail. And for values below $250,000, the assets can be seized. And that law has been widely welcomed. A couple of worrying signs about Zelensky, um, if there wasn't any in what I just said, there probably was, but a couple of worrying signs that are particularly key is that he's been pressured big time by the US and the EU to pursue the LGBT agenda in Ukraine uh, and also to really get big on climate change and climate action policy uh, and he's responded at least to some degree to that pressure. There's currently a law before the parliament to outlaw, for example, quote, open prejudiced negative attitudes towards, um, unquote, but then it lists people on the basis of various attributes, including sexual orientation, gender identity. Now, that sounds lovely as a motherhood statement, but we in the West know just how badly such vague laws are abused and used to attack and suppress any kind of thinking or conviction which is at odds with LGBTQ politics and thinking. Um, 
There's also a, a, a partnership with the US for climate action. Uh, and Zelensky also favors legal abortion, medical marijuana, prostitution, and has liberalized the gambling industry. In his words, quote, to be honest, you need to climb into the freedom of a person less. Uh, and I guess that the irony in that is that these things actually enslave people. Uh, you know, freedom, yeah, from a libertarian point of view, but uh, there's no freedom in any of that. Um, there is an important point to make about corruption. Um, there are questions about Zelensky's links to corruption, and it wouldn't be a complete segment if I didn't mention this. Um, the main one relates to a guy called Ihor Kolomoisky. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. But one of his business partners, uh, one of um, Zelensky's business partners, this is, and he is an oligarch. And Kolomoisky is accused of stealing $5.5 billion from Ukraine's largest lender uh, and fleeing the country where uh, he had been living in self-imposed exile for a long time. Zelensky announced his run for president on Kolomoisky's television network, which uh, then supported him extensively with media coverage and by running his shows. And Kolomoisky returned to Ukraine when Zelensky was elected president. And then came this thing, this investigation by uh, hundreds of investigative journalists all over the world called the Pandora Papers. This was a leak of millions of documents from offshore tax havens revealing secret bank accounts, offshore companies, private jets, yachts, mansions, art collections, all with concealed ownership structures, all part of an enterprise of money laundering and tax evasion. 35 current and former world leaders are implicated in the Pandora Papers, plus 300 other public officials and politicians. More come from Ukraine, over 30, uh, than any other country by far. The reason Australians may not have heard about this is because no Australians were implicated. Basically, the allegations are that Zelensky's business partners include Ukraine's current head of the SBU, which is Ukraine's main intelligence agency, which investigates many corruption cases, and a presidential aide who administers the offshore companies and apparently shares the profits with Zelensky's wife, um, and also uh, with Kolomoisky himself, the big oligarch. That's kind of the irony. There are companies with links to Zelensky in the British Virgin Islands, Belize and Cyprus, dating back to 2012, which is the approximate start of Zelensky's relationship with Kolomoisky. There are $40 million worth of money transfers revealed by these papers between Zelensky and his associates uh, and Kolomoisky. And the implication is that these funds, it's very hard to explain them. It's very hard to understand them apart from a money laundering enterprise which seems to be in the whole pan scheme of the Pandora Papers and all the different people involved, uh, one of the things that's going on. The upshot of all of this is that the breadcrumbs are there, but not enough to give conclusive proof of wrongdoing. Uh, Zelensky doesn't deny any of the connections. He doesn't deny the companies. He doesn't deny the business partners, uh, but he denies any personal involvement or involvement by Quarter 95, you remember his production company, in money laundering. Now, there is uh, people who say, well, this is business in Ukraine. This is the way that things are done there. This is the, the way tax evasion and putting things offshore. There's all sorts of reasons for doing it, and it is cultural and it's practice. Um, or indeed, there is connection to what the papers reveal at large, uh, which could be money laundering, at least tax evasion, at least tax evasion. So there are questions like that. And there's a couple of other you, people will know about Burisma and Joe, Hunter Biden and stuff like that as well. Uh, there's things like that everywhere. And Ukraine seems to have a bit of a corruption problem. Uh, how close is Zelensky to it? Hmm. Maybe closer than he made out when he was running for president. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily definitely prove that he's up to his eyeballs in it. It may be that he's just uh, rubbing shoulders with people who are. One cannot deny this, however. I said at the start, he's not an easy guy to sum up. <laughs> is he good? Is he bad? <sighs> Pretty hard, you know, uh, to make a, a clear call one way or the other. 
But one can't deny this much, and I, I kind of respect him for this much, as much as I don't respect a lot of the other stuff. He has been a remarkable leader uh, in the war effort. He's won the world support. He's put Ukraine on the map. He's shown great bravery. He stayed in Kiev with his family. Uh, he is the target of the Russians. Uh, he has led his country, therefore, in a spirited military defence. He's won more support and more assistance from the global community than Ukraine would otherwise have gotten. Uh, and he's won the propaganda war. Um, the effectiveness of his leadership, I think, has been astonishing. Uh, I think I respect his bravery, which has been quite astonishing as well. Uh, and I respect what Ukraine has been able to do, uh, which has been against the odds and quite astonishing uh, to protect their country. Uh, Time magazine kind of hypes it up just a bit and says that he altered the course of history. Uh, let's say that he altered the course of things dramatically at the outbreak of war, and it is summarised relatively fairly as follows. The change, that is the change in the global community support attitude, was not instantaneous. Western leaders were still divided two ways after the invasion. When they met to agree on a package of sanctions to punish Russia for its attack, Germany, Hungary and Italy initially wanted to water down these measures. Then Zelensky dialed into their meeting. Calm but determined, his face pale, covered with stubble, he told the leaders of the free world that this might be the last time they would see him alive. The enemy has marked me as target number one, he said in a video statement shortly after the call. My family is target number two. Yet Zelensky decided to stay in his capital, an act of courage that has already altered the course of history. It roused the US and its allies to impose unprecedented penalties against Russia, crashing the ruble and unplugging much of its economy from the rest of the world. Germany decided to pour more than $100 billion into its military, casting aside a post-war tradition of pacifism that has long frustrated allies. Switzerland broke from its tradition of neutrality to support sanctions. The EU agreed to put Ukraine on a path to membership, shedding decades of internal resistance. Now, that is actually all quite astonishing. Um, and it is largely due to Zelensky's wartime leadership. So overall, hard to know what to think. I said I'd do the segment, so I did. And I'd have to say, yeah, a great wartime leader. Possibly not the most moral of leaders, however. I'm Martin Isles, and that was the truth of it.